Hey folks, it's Jeremy. You're listening to Blamo. How are we doing? Is it uh, the holidays? Are we listening to this during the holidays? I don't know. When you wouldn't you even start saying Happy Holidays or, or, or Merry Christmas or Happy Thanksgiving or Happy Hanukkah, whatever it is. But uh, I don't I don't know when, when we when we kick this thing off. I mean I don't know. I, I was driving home this week, and so many folks like for real. So many folks had their holiday decorations up. I mean, we got lights, we had Baby Yoda, we had Santa. Uh, actually, I, I stand corrected, uh, Grogu. We had Grogu on the lawn. Whatever. I don't have anything up. I don't have any lights. I don't have any Christmas decorations. I don't have any any turkey stuff. I, I don't know. It's not that I don't care. I just, I got a lot of stuff going on, you know? I'm talking to you guys. I'm making pods. I'm raking leaves. I'm doing all that crap. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you one thing, though. I am going to watch White Christmas about 600 times because I freaking love that movie. Yes, the music's good, you know, but man, Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, The Fits, they're so good. They're, they really are good. Like, I would encourage you the next time you watch it. It's funny. I don't know. If you follow me on Instagram, every year I'm always like sending uh, like screen caps of like my favorite scenes in White Christmas um, because the style is is off the wall. The, the, these dudes had, you know, they had they had the high waisted vibes, but they just looked so good. Uh, it, it was good. Speaking of looking good, my guest this week, Mr. Eric Allen Ford, co-founder and CEO of Buck Mason. Uh, I'll be honest, I've really been admiring Buck Mason a lot lately. And yes, I'm sure you know many of you have probably purchased something from them or know someone who has for years. But I don't know. I feel like they're just making some great stuff right now. I mean. The truth is they always have been, but, you know, I, I just, the, recently, like this Eddie Bauer collection, the denim, it's good stuff. So, uh, so Eric and I chatted. We discussed his life growing up in rural Missouri. Look, yeah, I didn't know that either. Denim in the early aughts, American manufacturing, moving back to the Midwest, and building what you want to wear yourself. All right, it's Blamo. Here's my chat with Eric Allen Ford. Let's go. Thanks for making the time. I know, uh, Eric, you're you're a pretty busy guy these days running a massive company. So, yeah, I really appreciate That's, it. I don't think, definitely not massive. <laughs> I don't know. But. Fool, fooled me. I mean, it's it's funny because um, it's been really interesting to watch, you know, Buck Mason go from, and you know, and this is not a knock, to go from a brand that appeared on Shark Tank to now being <laughs> a brand that is like... More or less discussed amongst, you know, my snobby peers in the fashion industry where it's like, oh, my God, you know, where it's like, actually, there's some there's some good stuff going on over there. I mean, I was in uh, one of the stores in New York. I mean, and they're I mean, just looking through the product and stuff. And I want to say this to kind of clear the air, like this isn't like, man, I'm really surprised, you know, didn't believe in you. Uh, I'm not that surprised because you have a great team around you, but it's, I just get excited to see, you know, a newer air quote brand do great stuff. And I think sometimes I get a little burnt out while I love Ralph Lauren. I love, you know, all the classics. Sometimes you're like, I'd, I'd like to see a new brand try to, you know, give their take on it. So it's very exciting and refreshing to watch you all just kind of crush it. So congrats. Well, thank you so much. I I think that it's sort of weird to be public from inception as a brand. Okay. Think about like a musician Mm -hmm. when you're starting off in those first few years, it's just like you in a room, (laughs) you know, nobody's like critiquing (laughs) what you're doing. Yeah, fair. And 
You know, so one thing, like when we started in 2013, I mean, you're just trying to figure out like which way is up, right? right. And, but everything that you put out is public, you know? So of course, like if I go back and look at like our Instagram from 2013, I'm like cringing <laughs> at everything that I see, you know? It's like, but of, that's everyone, right? I'm, I, I don't know if you do that with your pod and listen, I'm sure your first oh, episodes were great, absolutely. but they're not as good as they are now, right? And yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So it's funny the, like you mentioned Shark Tank, because that was such a um, difficult decision with my partner and I, Sasha, and uh, we didn't have any capital for marketing, right? We didn't have $5 million from a venture capital firm to like try to go out and buy Facebook ads. So we thought, well, we're going to probably look really goofy. And, you know, it's like the dorkiest thing you could possibly do. Mm -hmm. But like, maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll, get some customers. And, um, and then there's the question of like, you know, are you going to put as seen on Shark Tank on your website? You know, so <laughs> of course not. Right. So you, you, uh, you want to, um, you basically want nobody to know that you went on Shark Tank and hope that like GQ and Esquire and like all the people don't know that it happened. But then of course, why not take 500,000 new customers from the middle of America and, you know, like a Kickstarter per se. So yeah, it's a wild decision. And that was a successful one. Um, but clearly, since we're talking about it here, people know about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I mean, Bombas did the same thing. I mean, Randy's a good friend of mine and they were on Shark Tank. And I think it's it's interesting, too, because it's almost like a pejorative term to say that. that. But what's interesting to me in the ones that really, really blow up are the ones that, yeah, like you were saying, you don't. You don't have as seen on Shark Tank on your website, but you know, like the ones that are like, okay, it was a way to get investment. Yeah. Like I didn't have to go through, I don't know, Y Combinator or some sort of thing. I mean, no shots to Anderson Horowitz, but like, you know, it, it wasn't the traditional thing. And also, yeah, all the marketing that you get. And it's, you know, the biggest thing I want to talk about with you other than just kind of like your daily life is I think that as someone who lives in the Midwest now, you know, I, I lived in New York for I don't know, 16, 17 years. I'm now back and forth between New York and St. Louis. The brands that I really see where people patronize and, and get into across the United States are the ones that pay attention to the rest of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, uh, I, I talk about this all the time. Like my brother-in-law, I love him to death. And he's a guy who he, he's not so much looking for some sort of um, mystique across everything you know, he, he purchases clothes from a very utilitarian mindset where it's like, I need a jacket. What's a good jacket? It's here. I'll buy the jacket. I'll buy it in 10 colors, but I need it. I can't change. And I have to, it's basically like crossing it off your list. The same way someone's buying like soap and eggs, you know, or whatever at a grocery store. A lot of these guys, you know, in the Midwest and, you know, across the United States are purchasing clothes that way. And they're purchasing a hundred X more than some snobby guy like me who is very lucky to just get discounts from all the brands anyway, you know? And, and so when I see brands like what you all are doing and you're paying attention to the entire United States and you're not making things so difficult to understand and it's very warm, and it's very approachable. I'm like, yeah, th this is how you do it. Like, <laughs> so. Well, I think the dream is to be able to build a product that um, can resonate with middle America or just the normal guy who needs a jacket. Yep. And that exact same piece, if I can also get you, because you recognize the details, you know, you're like, oh, that's actually like 1950s Biggie replica. And they actually paid attention to the the details. It's it's not necessarily a repro, 
but it's a version of a repro that you can respect because you know that we paid attention to the right details. And then my brother-in-law, who sounds just like yours, amazing guy, he's like, this is a great pair of jeans. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And, and end of story, <laughs> right? Like these fit me well and they like feel good out of the wash. That's the the dream. It just happened. We opened a store in my neighborhood. I live in the Midwest too. Well, Pittsburgh. And um uh, we, the first sale of the day we opened the store was to a friend of mine, very like just normal one, once good clothes. And he buys this corduroy chore jacket mm -hmm. towards the end of the day. This is so weird, but one of my favorite architects has just moved to Pittsburgh and he came to the opening. I'd never met him before. He's amazing. And, um, the jacket he was most excited about was the same piece that, <laughs> that we'd opened the day with. And it's kind of that example of like, you know, you're sort of threading the needle. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, so how intentional was this across the board in the sense when you look at your design and your storytelling and even your site where it's like, hey, we can't be too inside baseball or, you know, what's what's that thought process like? Yeah. I mean, I think you're basically assembling a group of people that are the same type of weird as you, right? Like everyone's <laughs> obsessed with... <laughs> Everyone's obsessed, right? right? And my obsession level is actually quite moderate because I, I'm, and which makes sense. Like I'm more of a generalist and need to be, um, keep after kind of the vision and the, the uh, be a little bit more of a big picture um, player in the mix. But our team, I mean, the obsession level is, it's intense. And so you're following their passion, right? Mm. They, they have ideas and they are, you know, so particular about what they want to create and you're following their passion. So I, it really starts with that. But I do think that because everyone is the same type of weird in that they're obsessed with timelessness, they're obsessed with the classics, right? Um, you don't really get in the door if that's not your jam. Mm. So that helps, I think, connect with normal folks. Yeah. I mean, the classics are the classics, you know? So I, I think that that's part of how it it works. It's not so much like, oh, we have to take that detail off because it's too... Oh, okay. You, you know, you're not like... There, there's not much merchandising, weirdly enough. Like, we're design-led. So you don't have a merchant in the room uh, talking about like pops of color or whatever, all that stuff. Like that's not, that's not our thing. You know, it's totally design led. Um, and it usually starts with vintage. And, um, the cool thing about that is that these are pieces that have, um, there's a history. And so the normal guy, you know, can understand a really great five pocket gene or, you know, uh, a really great Oxford or whatever. Um, and so, uh, but the design team does have carte blanche, to like go as far as they want to go. Like they're, they're able to express themselves fully. It's just that the taste level is generally leaning towards timelessness. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really thing that you said and that you're more design led because you're right. There's a lot of other brands that really, I, I think sometimes when you receive the product and it's not in the environment that you saw the product in, the product is like really lifeless, right? which is like one of the the challenges of e-commerce that I think every brand tries to do. And it's like, well, online or in our store, you see this product and we built this entire world around it. And there's this character, you know, this, this man, this woman, you know, whomever, and they're really embodying this lifestyle. And so you have this car and all of these things. And then the person, person gets excited by it. They purchase the product. It arrives in their house in like a toilet box, tissue paper, whatever it is. <laughs> and they're like, oh, bummer. 
And it also feels like it. I mean, I think that's the thing too. Because right. I mean, I've, you know, I have a bunch of Buck Mason stuff and I was wearing the, uh, the thermal. I was wearing it around and my wife saw it and um, she was like, this is really, really nice. Like, she's like, this is, you know, really beautiful. And, and for my, for my wife to make that comment, because she sees me surrounded by clothes all the time. I was like, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it. And I mean, I think that's, it makes me wonder too, like why other brands aren't really trying to think this way. Cause I'm sure they are, but it is a danger, you know, and I won't call brands out when you you see the whole lifestyle and you get the product at your door and you're just like, oh, bummer. Yeah, I mean, I think it all ties back to sort of like first principles thinking, because if you, I mean, if you start with an incredible pattern, sure, you know, like you, like if you have the best pattern maker in the world, and that's where you start, and then your design, you know, your design and PD team, they're going to go out and source a fabric like that thermal that that you, I think it's like, uh, it's sort of a flat, smooth inside. Yeah. It's it's like double faced. It's really nice. And and I actually remember developing that fabric um, four or five years ago with the team. And, um, you know, it's like if you have this pattern maker and then you have this design team and you're uh, you're going out to build something that's sort of emotional, like as a, as a team, and maybe there are four or five key players that are going out to build this emotional product. Um, it's just such a different experience versus like, oh, we need a thermal in the collection, mm. you know, because those do 4% of total volume in the knitwear category, whatever, you know, like, and, you know, of course that's not going to be an emo. It wasn't an emotional decision to even make a thermal, right? It was like a, it was just a, um, it was about sales. Right. And so like, I think sort of just turning the whole thing on its head and being first, being first principles minded, it just turns out emotional product. And I have to say, you know, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Ralph earlier, like the greatest at building emotional product. I mean, I haven't, I haven't shopped that much at Ralph recently, but growing up, I did feel like those products were emotional beyond the campaigns. Like the actual product I got Mm -hmm. held up to the campaign, you know, um, and I think that that's, yeah, that's what we're, we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, on the Ralph stuff, um, they're also in this, they're in this unique position now into which they can sell nostalgia with their own brand because of how long they've been around. You know, I remember when, when Snow Beach returned and it was like everyone's head was exploding at the same time because, you know, for folks that didn't know, Ralph Lauren did this collection uh, for polo called Snow Beach and it was really cool. And then all the cool low heads wore it and all these hip hop folks were wearing it and, you know, Wu-Tang and all the, all those dudes wore it. And they basically never did it again. And everyone was trying to collect vintage Snow Beach. And then one day they said, Hey, Snow Beach is back. And so they're able to sell, you know, just tons and tons off of like memories of just the brand that existed. And it's really interesting to see how some of those folks do it because sometimes I'm like, wait, does this mean there's no cards left? I mean, or is this, you know, I mean, and I love Ralph. So Everyone that's listening to this, even Ralph folks that are listening to this, like I'm always going to stand behind it. But it's it's an interesting perspective that where it's like this new tool that you can use, especially now where like all millennials just love nostalgia. It's like why a Ninja Turtles collaboration all of a sudden sells out where it's like, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, like the bear. I mean, you know, how many like there are people probably on the third bear now. Right. Mm. The, 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 the sweater. I mean, like I had the bear sweater and then it coming back that was a big purchase. Like that was crazy. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if you remember. I oh, think for sure. Yeah. The polar the bear. Day, yeah. They were like $89 or something. I mean, I don't even know how I got one, Yeah, but it was, uh, 
you know, and then when that came back, um, yeah, so much nostalgia. It makes you wonder, like, should I be wearing a bear right now? Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, that, it is interesting. Is sometimes you're like, <laughs> yeah, am I dressing? If I'm dressing like myself when I was 13 or 15, what does that say about how I feel right now? <laughs> no, you're you're right. I there's you know I feel like I I, I had some good tips when I was younger, but yeah, I, I wrestled with that too. Um, you mentioned motion a lot. What, where did a lot of this stuff come from, from you? Like what was kind of your, your life? Like when you're, when you're making stuff, are you like tapping into youth at the same time or what? I, I think from, well, I grew up in, uh, so you're in St. Louis. Yeah. Okay. I, I grew up in Concordia, Missouri, um, which is sort of town outside of a town outside of Kansas city. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you've probably driven, driven by, it. um, I graduated with 38 kids. So, Obadiah, um, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, young. And um so the um it was rural, you know, just like farm town and everybody wore I mean I was in the FFA, you know, like you know, that was I had an Future had, Farmers of America for folks who don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, unironic. Like I had the jacket just because you had the jacket, right? Hell yeah. And um so uh workwear for me was just I, I didn't know there was a thing called fashion until later, and the idea of like being able to have a career in it, you know, making clothes that just wasn't even a thought that I, I even though I loved clothing, I never thought like I wonder who makes this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, but that side of things I think was super emotional. My dad was a, a brick mason, and so you know he kind of came home with like the perfect Levi's every day, you know, white Hanes tee, V-neck. And um, that was, you know, flannel shirt, like probably not Red Wings, but something in the vein, Mm -hmm. you know, the off-brand Red Wing. And um, so that was always super emotional. And then I loved denim. I I started working at the mall and, you know, denim was just uh, everything. You probably know if you're from St. Louis, the buckle. Did you, were you a mall kid? Yeah. Like high school? I mean, my first mall job was I worked at Banana Republic when I was 16, you know, okay. slinging okay. Dawson yeah. pants. Uh, this was, had to have been 2000 probably. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 99. <laughs> okay. Uh, same thing. So, um, and, and it, like, I, that was probably inside baseball, but <laughs> like which mall in, in St. Louis? Oh, that's fine. Uh, so I would frequent Jamestown mall, which blew up okay. because they had a movie theater really changed the game. And, um, the, but at there, I think there was like a Sears and a couple stuff, but then I ended up working at like, kind of, I'm air quoting like the nice mall, which was called Chesterfield mall, which as we yeah. speak right now is in the process of getting totally demolished and turning into, uh, a new like town square of luxury condos. I, I don't oh, know wow. how I feel about it. Jeez. Yeah, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But it it was it was my youth. I mean, you know, and because I worked at that yeah. mall again, I worked at Hollister in 2003, which was a whole other can of worms. Yeah. But yeah, I, I loved, I loved them all. Very different cultures. You got the gap culture, you got the A&F culture. Oh, yeah. That, the, but yeah. So, well, uh, sim- well, okay. So Chesterfield Mall, my best friend, one of my best friends um, back in the day, he was the manager of the buckle at Chesterfield Mall, which is where I worked. That was my store. And, and back in, this is in 99, the buckle was 
you know, like a Midwest chain of uh, specialty store, multi-brand specialty store. And they were sort of like back then a notch below Nordstrom men's, mm-hmm. you know, they sold Polo, Z Cavarici, Gerbo, like the, the, the assortment was um, for the Midwest, mm-hmm. like where I'm, where I was from. Uh, the assortment was as, about as good as you can get other than if you went to Nordstrom men's and most, uh, you know, like in Kansas city, there was one Nordstrom. It was, it was a long way away. So, um, that was kind of the denim, you know, and they sold more, uh, denim, I think than anybody other than the gap, Wow. uh, in that, in that time. And, um, you know, had like something like a hundred different brands. So that was probably the beginning for me as far as like emotion, you know, uh, deciphering through. i remember we got diesel you know diesel jeans and it was like you know the music stopped yeah i got crap diesels it, and that was like the thing <laughs> for me yeah yeah totally um so uh but yeah and then you you know in la when i moved to la trying to learn how to make clothes i ended up getting a job for some guys that had actually founded lucky brand and they were incredible mentors that was probably the beginning of like really thinking through they built clothes these guys uh gene montesano and barry perlman really legends they built clothes for themselves Mm. like that was the way and they built multiple brands um uh, that were wildly successful. Gene built Bongo in the 80s. Uh, Gene and Barry built Lucky Brand together. And then they had the Gene shop in the meatpacking district on 14th Street. They had a couple of other brands. Yeah. And um, their mentality was like, just build what you want, want to wear, you know? And I picked that up like that. That I think that was a great lesson. And I think that's what Ralph does. I really think he builds product that he wants to wear. And I think we've, you know, at, at Buck Mason, that's kind of, it's a community of, it's a community of guys building stuff that they want to wear. Right. Well, let's, I want to jump back one second. What brings you to LA from Okay, Concordia? so, uh, yeah, yeah. So I um, managed a store at 19, um, uh, the Springfield, you know, Spr- Springfield, Missouri, Battlefield Mall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I actually um, do know. I've been to that mall. Okay, so I was the store manager of that uh, of that uh, location. And then, you know, after a couple of years, they had me, I don't know why, but they had me running like uh, Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas, and uh, Illinois. So my week was like, I would jump in the car and I would go to like Joplin, Missouri. Then I would go to uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Rogers, Arkansas, you know, and and sort of look after all these stores. It, super young, you know, and um, that went on for like my early 20s. You know, by the time I was like 23 or 24, I'd kind of had like 10 years under my belt as, you know, like like you you probably had a district manager or something like that <laughs> yeah. at uh, Hollister or whatever. Yeah, I was like that guy that would like come around and, you know, help out the stores. and. Um, the guys that I ended up working for, Gene Montesano and Barry Perlman, I was at this like manager meeting in, uh, I don't know, like Omaha, Nebraska, or Kearney, Nebraska or something yeah. where they would bring all the managers in. And um, uh, Gene and Barry had come in from LA and they were, they were so cool. You know, they, they like, they fly in <laughs> on a private jet. They're dressed to the nines. You're like, wait, I've never seen anything what? like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and, uh, and so it was a Q&A and the, the first question was, um, like, how did you create this? Like how, like, and, and, uh, Gene, uh, looked out in the audience and he was like, you can create this, you know, anybody can do this. And, and he sort of gave this whole spiel, like brought the curtain back and talked about how, you know, you can just, you can make clothes, you can build a brand. And, uh, 
you know, I was sort of levitating on the ceiling and thinking, all right, let's go to LA. Let's, let's see what this is about. So I went out to LA to basically find those guys and talked them into hiring me. And, you know, that was, that was it. I, I sort of figured, okay, I know how to sell clothes. I had put together that in New York, you sell clothes and in LA, you make clothes. Mm. And I mean, even though there are exceptions to that, obviously, with the garment district district in New York and such, but, um, and I wanted to learn how to make clothes. And so that was LA. Holy shit. I think, you know, and this is obviously, you know, my assumption, <laughs> incorrect assumption. I, I feel like I thought you had a totally different career and background before Buck Mason. And, and it makes way, way, way more sense now why you care so much about making things in America again. Because the thread that, you know, is is behind the scenes throughout your entire career is the rapid depletion of American manufacturing. Because during that area that or during that era that you were at what Buckle or whatever, that was sure. probably some of the peak, you know, 20th century um, American denim manufacturing, where I think it was what, like out in Tennessee. And then what was it? Was it sites or something? Or there was a bunch of different places that were just full, full throttle denim. You know, I mean, um, sure. The folks who run IMOG and Willie, they were all linked into that. And so there was so much American manufacturing that was happening. And it had kind of peaked a bit during NAFTA and then it was all kind of like slowing down. And this is when you know, you are kind of rising on your own, figuring out how to build your own company and just seeing America just get ripped to shreds, no pun intended, with with clothing manufacturing. Oh, I mean, well, when uh, back in the early 2000s, all the Lucky Brand stuff was made in the U.S. and it was made by Mr. Koo, uh, mm. Mr. Koo, the the uh, founder of AG, right? And he, um, he was doing all the production in the U.S. or most of it for Lucky Brand, I believe. And, um, I mean, all those folks were making everything here. I mean, Seven for All Mankind, Citizen, AG, Chip and Pepper, I don't know. Uh, you remember? Yeah, Chip and Pepper, right. <laughs> Who else? I mean, there were so many. Uh, there, you know, there are probably hundreds. J-Brand, yeah. uh, all made in the USA, Page. Um, and so, and then simultaneously, you know, like right around the time that uh, we were getting started. I mean, I remember the day that basically American Apparel lost 5,000 jobs. You know, I was driving down to my factory and Dove was out in front of his factory. He had sort of been exiled, picketing with half of his employees while the other half were still inside. And they were, you know, um, basically taking, um, you know, American Apparel uh, overseas. So weird that American Apparel is not made in America. Wait, wait, hold on a second. Okay, before you send that DM or text that friend, I know what you're thinking. You're ready to buy your first serious watch. Or in other cases, maybe your fourth or your fifth. But look, man, it's hard out there. It really is. From this dealer or that store that wants the purchase history or whatever. I mean, you're just, I don't know. You're almost ready to walk away from the whole game. But fear not, my friends. Check out Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch with expert in-house authentication on every purchase. With over 18,000 watches listed right now, as of the time I'm recording this, from a mix of professional dealers to private sellers, you're just going to find what you're looking for. But wait, wait, I know. You're like, Jeremy, I'm sorry. They don't have that X Rolex or that insane Omega. Well, reach out to them. Bezel has a real team of real people. 
Just create an account and be connected with a private client advisor and they will guide you through the entire process every step. Once you decide on your watch, it's overnighted to Bezel HQ where their in-house team of experts authenticate it and then it's on your way to you. If anything is amiss, the watch is not listed correctly, whatever it is, they'll let you know, the buyer know, and the offer to refund you or source you a new one at a similar price. That's <laughs> pretty good, right? This has been part of the Bezel ethos since launch. I've even spoke to the founders about it. And now you can make an offer on a watch, buy it outright, or bid it at auction. Bezel is the highest rated watch marketplace out there. Even Trustpilot shows Bezel is 4.9 out of 5 stars with rave reviews. Okay, okay, you're still on the fence? Dig into the Blamo feed yourself and listen to my chat with the Bezel co-founders and, well, see for yourself. But you got this. I believe in you. Visit GetBezel.com and buy and sell your next luxury watch. That's GetBezel.com. GetBezel.com. Yeah, it's uh, quite strange. I mean, it's it's unfortunately a tale as old as time as any, you know, manufacturing brand, you know, grows and blah, 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 capitalism, et cetera, you know, bad debt, whatever you want to say. But yeah, I mean, I, it's that's really got to tug on the heartstrings seeing that in front of you and also it being what it sounds like was driving you. I think I think some of that um, is definitely true. Um, at the beginning, we we really did want to make a, as much product as we as we could in the U.S. I think you know traveling internationally and starting to see what the global supply chain really looks like. I mean, I've had amazing experiences in other parts of the country building product with people and in a way that's super soulful. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I totally embrace the idea of a really conscientious and thoughtful um, global supply chain, you know, um, but there are certain categories that I don't think anybody can do better um, than the U.S. And I think that's tees and jeans. I mean, you can probably make better jeans in Japan. You can make better jeans in Japan for sure. If you, but if you're, but there's also a, a price to that. So, I would say Japan and then, you know, um, uh, U.S. is is shortly uh, after. Um, teas, I mean, I, I really like American teas. I, I feel like there's there's the infrastructure there, the um, the supply chain works and it makes sense. You've got the, the, the expertise. Um, and I think both on, you know, in the southeast and, and eastern PA where we have our factory and then also in L.A., you can just make wonderful teas at a great value. So, you, you know, I, I think that that supply chain really, really makes sense. Well, yeah. And thank you for acknowledging the the rest of the world too, because I think, um, you know, I've talked to tons of folks on the show over the years where some folks are ride or die American, you know, almost like an elitism that comes out. Cause I think it's one thing when you, you speak about American manufacturing in a nostalgic way, but I think it turns into a whole other thing when you get into the whole elitism of it, where it's like, it really is better, you know? I mean, are the hands American? You know, what sort of thing, you know, are are we going to drill down here where it can occasionally get racist, it can get elitist, it can get all these other things. And when you look at how the denim industry has evolved, you know, you have different ethnicities coming to America, rebooting American denim, you know, and, um, you know, folks from different countries, all this beautiful melting pot, which I think is, is incredible. But, you know, it's funny because a friend of mine runs... Um, production where, you know, they've, they've handled and messed with production all over the world, Japan, Italy, um, Eastern yeah. Europe, uh, Africa, India, India is a new place that's great clothing production right now. 
And they've found that the best R&D and QC for them, and I've seen this stuff literally on FaceTime calls with them, was in China. And it was just jaw-dropping how incredible uh, it was and on these these hand-sewing for the shoes that they were making, the boots. And these are all the things that if, you know, I could publicly say this stuff, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's sure. great to be like, look, you don't need to be 100% American manufacturing, 100%, you know, Italian, 100%, whatever. You can mix it all together and you can still honor all these different traditions and you know, support a, a, a stronger economy, et cetera, et cetera, you know, happy-go-lucky, whatever. But I think I'm just grateful that you at least acknowledge that because some folks are like, no, man, it's just American. And everything else sucks. And you're like, well, come on. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, like, to shop. I'm sure you do this somewhere. You If you shop and you're not looking at, um, try not to look at labels, both country of origin or the actual label, like at a multi-store, uh, multi-brand store. Mm-hmm. And you go, you go in and you're just looking at make and fabric and you're sort of evaluating the product. And, you know, you might look at a garment and think, oh, this is definitely made in Italy or this is, this is, this is the, the jam. Right. Yeah. And then it's like made in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm doing great I'm surprised right now. Manufacturing, all the, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm surprised all the time at like, you know, it's, if you have the right designer, if you have the right pattern maker, and if you have the right fabric, and then if there's one factory in whichever, you know, whichever one factory owner, maybe it's a boutique factory. And, um, you know, that's where I say, like, I, it, you're making product with people. You're not making product with con- with countries, right? Right. It's, it's, a, it's, it's this relationship that you have with the factory owner. Most of what we do um, is with small to medium-sized factories, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're, it's more about the mentality and the principles that the owner of the factory or the family has wherever they are. Um, and if you've got alignment there, um, you know, you can make some great stuff. Okay. That's, that's a very, uh, that's, that's a great perspective. There's a lot of humbleness in that. Where did that come from? I, I mean, I think that probably came from Yvonne Chouinard, right? Like, that's his thing. I mean, he he was always like, I, I think that they the, at Patagonia, they made product in Asia, mm-hmm. and they still do, you know, but they make good product. And um, there was always a... There was always a, a a perspective of like, we're going to stick with the same factory for a really long time. We're going to build a relationship, you know, and make this a relational thing. I, I think he was probably the the person that, you know, from, from his book, that's probably how I first started thinking about that. Like, you know, okay, let's build product with the same factory for 20 years. Mm. I think that was, the, I think that's their mentality or it was their mentality. Cause I mean, you didn't work with Yvonne personally though, right? No, I mean, no, 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 just, no, just from reading the book. Cause it feels like some of this stuff has got to be a little bit of uh, some Midwest values. I don't know if it's, if it's mom and dad pulling out there or whatever, but there's, it's, it, I think it's hard to have a position that you have where you, in most cases, your biggest enemy is your ego because you got all sorts of different people coming around you, stroking the ego, people telling you how much money you're worth, how much money you're not worth, how much you need to do this, how much you need to do this. And to kind of peel all that back and to center yourself in a non-bullshit way too, where it's like, well, I meditate every day for 15 minutes. You're like, come on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but like that, where did, I think those things are usually instilled at a much younger age. So I'm just kind of curious if you've ever uh, looked through that. I think I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I'm just curious. Like that's probably more what it's, what's driving it um, with, 
you know, with, and you try to be super relational, right? Like I've just, everything that's gone well for me has come from like long-term relationships, Mm. people that you've worked with for a really long time. You know, um, I mean, that guy that hired me at the buckle when I was 16, you know, Darren's still in my life. Like really? amazing. Yes, absolutely. An amazing guy. I had all these mentors back then with, uh, during that time of my life. Um, and in fact, one of them who was kind of in, in, in a way, my boss, I just hired to be our uh, executive vice president of stores Whoa. and he was, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, I think that's sort of my approach is, um, you know, how do you, um, trust, you know, build trust, build long-term relationships. So, um, and with like the international supply chain conversation or, or the domestic supply chain conversation, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. It probably comes from just, you know, um, that working. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great. I mean, when people ever ask me for advice in the industry, I'm like, don't be an asshole. Like understand (laughs) that everything, you know, it's such a small industry and everyone that you talk to is only, you know, is is not so much going to remember what you did for them, but more of like how you acted when you interacted. Like, you know, like what yeah. was your character? Like, you know, do you do you stay in touch with them? And it's not about sending people Christmas cards, but just like being a good and honest person. I think, at least for me, because I come from nothing. I don't have any money. I don't have any prestigious education. Uh, it's just like, oh yeah, I know Jeremy. He's a nice guy. And I'm like, damn, okay. Mission success. Mission accomplished. <laughs> we did <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what one conversation or or one person can do in uh putting someone over the edge to like take a risk like that. I think that's really cool and yeah. It's really important to remember, you know, like now, like obviously, you know, people we both have we're lucky to have influence, right? And yeah. um I think about that with my team sometimes, you know, have someone come to me and ask like they're interested in starting their own label or mm, interested yeah. in, you know, like and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's so important to like, look for reasons that you can encourage, you know, like encourage someone to like step out and, and try it. Um, but I had people like that uh, growing up that, you know, sort of gave you the, you know, you could do that. Like you could do that maybe, you know, and yeah. you sort of go, you think like, uh, I was thinking about doing it, you know, and it's, it just can be enormous. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, what what was the thing for you then? Well, I mean, was it just that meeting where they're saying that you could run your own clothing company? I had one. I had one boss. Uh, his name his name's Jim Colbo, and he was like a regional vice president at the Buckle. And anytime I came to him with ideas, mm. he was just like so. I would come to him with the craziest, totally outside the box, you know, things that probably didn't fit into the framework of what we were doing, but he was always so supportive. And, um, you know, he would sort of like reward my outside the box thinking, you know, just by saying, Hey, I recognize that you're thinking outside of the framework. And I love, I love that perspective. I love that take. Mm. Um, he was probably the first one that, you know, sort of made me feel like, cause I was pretty rebellious in, um, from an ideation standpoint, I've always been really rebellious. Like, I don't want to, you, you know, I, like, I didn't want to build Buck Mason the way that the other companies were built. I right. just, I just don't like conventional wisdom or conventional um, thinking has always sort of bored me, I think, in, in some ways. And um, he was the first person that sort of saw that as a um, positive 
and as an asset, you know, versus like, usually it's like, oh, okay, fall in line, man. You know, yeah. like, let's go, you know, like, this is what we're doing here. And um, so, and then also Gene and Barry, uh, the, those guys, I mean, they were so far out. I mean, in their thinking, like they, they were willing to take enormous risks and did not care at all about conventional wisdom. And that, that was, you know, I think gave a lot of confidence. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how much that stuff really sticks with you too, when, when you kind of look back on it, because it's not so much about some sort of prosperity thing, or it's like, oh, I took this job in X field so I can make this much money to go do what I really wanted. I mean, all these things were just more about people around you. You know, a friend of mine, he's, he's super smart and, you know, we'll always like get on the phone and talk about different things. And I remember I'd worked for a company and I was trying to work on something and I was like, Hey, I had this idea to do this and this. And they were just like, no, 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 no. And uh, I was telling him, and he's like, dude, you got to be wary of any boss who's intimidated by your ideas. He's like, you, that's, that's bad, man. He's like, jump ship. And I was like, what? He's like, trust me, it's not going to end well. And, uh, he was right, <laughs> you know? Totally. And I was just like, damn, um, it's, and I think that's a thing too, because, you know, when people talk about like working with like different, you know, Gen Z or millennials or whatever, and they're like, oh man, they're always, everyone just wants money. Everyone's money. money. And I, I get it. Everyone needs a good, healthy amount of money to live, to be secure, to pursue their job. I want to be very clear. But I think more people are motivated by like a path, right? Like a career trajectory and security and, and the, the, the security to make mistakes and to dream big and to do stuff like that. It's, you know, it's, it's so important to have that type yeah. of relationship and to create that culture. So totally. I, I also, one thing I look for in leaders, managers, uh, I, I want to hire people who are unafraid of hiring people who are better than them. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's so hard to find, right? Um, it's true. A lot uh, of know, ego, we, especially in fashion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I mean, the person who's willing to hire a team of people who are smarter than them is like the most valuable person in the organization. It's right. so rare, you know, like, uh, and, um, I think that, uh, it reminds me of, um, I was working for, for this company for several years and, um, was I, I was kind of like the the general manager of mm -hmm. the company, right? There were the owners and then I was like the the um I don't know what you sort a sort of like COO type of a type of role, right? And uh things were going really well. I I think that you know, I was getting all this feedback, like positive feedback that I was like I was sort of like the third musketeer. Everything was going great, right? Nice. And so so I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm I, I got got a lot of confidence and um it was time for my contract to be renewed. And so as part of my new contract, I asked for 1% of the company over five years, 20 mm -hmm. basis points per year and um, no salary raise. Right. So I was going to keep the same salary and then I was going to, to, I wanted to receive 1%. The company was probably worth $2 million. Right. Nothing. I mean, it was, it was, it was not worth a lot. At the time. Yeah. 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 My equity would have been, you know, at that time, Smart move, uh, not very actually. valuable. Really, really great negotiating idea. <laughs> and um, the the answer was no, right? The answer yeah. was no. You know, it was just like it was a hard no. And it um, I, that just that made me. It, I was so confused, you know, because I'm sort of like you're telling me that I'm such a big part of the organization. Ah, uh, yeah. Like on the daily, right? 
Yeah. And so, um, so at, yeah, at Buck Mason, we give every full-time person equity. It, it, even if it's a small, it's a small amount, but every person receives equity. And, uh, the, because you actually want people to participate in the success and be a part of the ride and you want them to feel ownership because you're telling them all these things. Like we want you to be entrepreneurial. Why would I be entrepreneurial if I'm not an entrepreneur? <laughs> bars. Wow. <laughs> right? You know, so it's like that's true. <laughs> you know, it's it's wild like we really we really want to participate in these enterprises that we're involved with. Like we don't want to be we don't want to just punch a clock. None of us do. We really want to get involved and like have a uh, a piece of the pie and yeah. participate, take the ride and also contribute. And I see that so often where um, you have people that are capable of absolutely extraordinary things, but we just don't let them loose. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's that's the thing too, where you're talking about like con- contributing, where I think it's it's more rare now to meet someone that just has such a strong ego where they're just gonna, they're just trying to do their own thing and they're gonna knock down anyone who gets in their way. Most people want to be a part of a larger system, you know, and, and something where they can they can make impact, they can be, you know, they can be showcased, but they're a part of something that's going to educate them. You know, I think that's that's a, a mindset that I think many people really have. And when you look at people who own companies who are really terrified of giving any sort of ownership, in most cases, sometimes it's like, wow, do you really think this is all you're ever going to amount to is what you're doing right now? You know, like Paul McCartney talks about this all the time when he, they were like, man, they're like, how did you survive when you didn't have the ownership of the Beatles songs? And, and it was so... You know, and he's like, it wasn't so much that I couldn't write, you know, he's like, I, I wanted it because I I had created it, but he's like, but I also, I can just write another song, you know, he's like, I right. can just, I can make, I can make it something again. Like it wasn't that like, that was all that it was ever going to be, you yeah. know? That's so funny. I, I look at myself as an employee way more than I do as an owner. Right. Like I, 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 I totally resonate with that perspective of like, I do think that in a lot of ways we started Buck Mason because there just wasn't an organization like it so that we could be a part of it. You you know, that Mm -hmm. the, um, and partly because my partner and I, I think got to the point where we were a bit unemployable. Um, but (laughs) the, (laughs) the, (laughs) no, but, um, I now look at it so much more as like, what can I, like, how can I contribute? I want to be a contributor. I'm constantly asking myself, like, am I contributing enough? Mm. And then you assemble like a board of directors so that you can get, you can receive feedback and have a team that is mentoring and educating you. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally, I, I totally agree with that. You know, sometimes it's like the only reason that you start something is that like, yeah, there just isn't anything like it and you cannot get it out of your mind. You know, mm-hmm. I've heard people say that like, you should only write a book if it just will not go away. The, the, the idea or the thought refuses to, to, wow. to leave. If not, don't even think about it, you know? <laughs> and, um, I think in a lot of ways that was, that was Buck Mason. It, it took, um, it was, it would not leave. It wouldn't go away. And, um, and then it wasn't like we could just go be with a company like it, or at least it didn't feel like that to us, um, uh, at the time. Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like also you probably wouldn't have been able to start Buck Mason and run it the way it is now if you hadn't been through such a shit show. 
like yeah of just yeah, yeah, a, yeah. you know what a gauntlet of stuff <laughs> yeah totally uh totally and i mean you know it sounds like kind of like you i mean i had like i mean you know i was in I was in middle management for what seemed like forever, you know, like I just, I just been, you know, I, 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 I spent so much time. Um, so I'd spent so much time doing a lot of the things that I would end up, um, doing at Buck Mason for others, you know? So it Mm. it felt like a, it felt like a natural, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, the tasks and a lot of the things, even that I do today, you know, it's like, it's so repetitious because, um, I, uh, I've been in the same industry for 20, 24 years. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so now you're back in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, what brought you back there? What brought you back to the Midwest, you know, from LA? Yeah, I never thought that would happen. Uh, the... <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> uh, so my wife's from here and, yep. you know, we, we had our daughter and, um, uh, right at the beginning of, uh, the pandemic, we, uh, sort of had this opportunity. We thought about it and we thought, well, we'll try it for a year, you know, see, see if it, see if it, if it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the first year was a total shock, you know, 15 years of in LA. And then I moved to Pittsburgh. I, I mean, I live in this amazing little town sort of in the country and, um, it's slow. It is, <laughs> it is so slow, you know, um, yeah. But it's so charming and there's like the people in Pittsburgh are so uninterested in like what's cool or what's happening. They just do not care, you know? Right. Yeah. There's just not a, there's, there's just no scene. And, um, that's been amazing to just be completely like, um, to, to be completely removed mm. from any type of pretense around like, what's cool or what's interesting or what's happening with my wife and I both being in sort of like artistic, creative fields and, you know, um, being used to that has just been the most amazing experience and to just build, you know, great relationships with, uh, amazing folks, but, um, you know, not always in like the artistic or creative world, you know, that's been interesting. I mean, what's it been like for you? Um, the exact same. I mean, I'm nodding my head for folks, you know, who are listening to this while he was explaining it, because yeah, I I think at first one, I I don't think I realized how elitist I had been on, you know, just unconsciously where, you know, and it's not like, oh, I don't go to Starbucks, whatever. I will say I don't go to Starbucks because I don't respect how Howard Schultz treats his employees, but that's a whole other discussion. But like, I, you know, I was, I was very spoiled by having an extremely diverse, extremely competitive lifestyle in New York. And I was also in this echo chamber of individuals who you had a lot of sort of iron sharpens iron. You know, most of my conversations were about what we all, like any other relationship, what we all loved, which was like clothing or fashion or something, you know, and obviously New York's an incredibly diverse place, all sorts of people from different backgrounds and different you know, but like any place that you live, you do kind of start to make friends through a specific common interest, right? Like this is just Freudian crap, right? And we moved here and no one around us cares about what has been, how I've made a living for, you know, no one cares about that. They care about, um, you know, the fact that we both have 
kids or that, you know, I also have a house that looks similar to theirs or, you know, I also have issues with moles in my yard. Like something that's just, and I think it's been really, really refreshing and it's helped recenter and reframe uh, that I need to have much more gratitude in my life. And I've really tried to, to focus on that. It's, it's also been great. I mean, my dad's health is horrendous. And so I get to see him and I get to just sit with him. And that's also been very um, heavy to just process that in which, you know, and I think I'm not saying this was everyone that was in a bigger city, but for me, I was just so focused on refinement, improvement, more, better, growth, big, but you know, that I just really started to not like myself as well. Sure. And coming here, you know, I I definitely feel like I'm in the best of both worlds because I'm in New York about like once a month. So I get to go there and I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? Why did I just pay $11 for this stupid coffee from St. Ambrose, whatever, you know? And then I come back here and then I'm like, what the hell? I, you know, I love my Target. And then I'm like, why am I just going to Target all day? What, you know, and you just kind of- No, but they so work great. so- <laughs> they work so well. I mean, I'm in a similar situation to you. I'm in LA yeah. every month. So it's the, it, it's, and I'm, I'm often in New York as well, but the, uh, um, the, the slowness and pace mm-hmm. and the ability to like, just sit down and, you know, read a book or, or yeah. like sit, I have this little cafe that I just sit outside and, and, you know, I'll work or I'll read or I'll like talk. I just talk to people, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds yeah. crazy. And uh, you do that in LA and you do that in New York and you do that in other places, but there's something about a slowness and pace and sort of uh, uh, that I have found and, and just the lack of a scene that I have found totally liberating. And, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love, I love the, um, the big cities and I, I, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, I'm sure we'll probably, um, uh, I, I don't know how long this will be or, yeah. you know, but w- with little, with little kids feels right for us. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, that was the other thing too. And, you know, I'll say this cause it's not so much like, oh, New York sucked and I left. I wouldn't be, I still love it. It's still, or in many ways, like, I feel like I'm the most home, but I also recognize that I was based on where I was in my life. I was also somewhat poisoned by the place that I love the most. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing for someone who might DM me or something hearing this, you know, um, and, you know, and, and truth be told, we also couldn't, we just couldn't afford it. We couldn't make it work with, with the priorities of the life that my family was trying to embody of just, you know, I wanted my kids to be it. You know, they, they're both in daycare or, or actually my daughter's in, in public school now and it's a great school and my son's in daycare and, you know, and I can. And so that that life is just really rewarding and also getting to see my my kids getting to be around their family, you know, is, is just been such a, you know, such a blessing to sound like some sort of, you know, pioneer woman thing. But I mean, it's just it's great. And I think it's really helped me understand more about the priorities of you know, so many other people in my community. And I think it helps me be more of an empathetic listener, storyteller, when you realize that like, not everyone cares about quote, getting a fit off, right? Like (laughs) they they don't, and that's okay. And we can laugh about that and we can use these things that can, you know, bond us. But like, you know, there are people that have very real problems. And I think when you can, when you can listen to those things, I mean, it really, you know, as a, as a consultant or business person, whatever you want, it really does help you make a better understanding. I mean, which, you know, watch this transition here, right? Like, which really, I'm the most fascinated by how Buck Mason has like quadrupled down on physical retail in a place where oh. everyone's like, this is such a bad idea. And you guys appear to be crushing it and be and, and starting to become the, the, the lifeblood of the streets that you pop up on. Um, 
you know, I, I'm curious about that evolution and if any of that had to do with you relocating. Well, I mean, uh, didn't have anything to do with me relocating, but I have to say that part of the business, I, I mean, is so much fun. I mean, you know, bonding, like there's nothing better than bonding. I want to have you in my store mm. right now. You know, I would love for you to, I want, I want to like serve you and have you come in and like, you know, I would love to um, to, uh, work with you as a client. I mean, that is so much fun. That's like the greatest, you you get to bond over, uh, you know, the product that you made and the Mm. product that, you know, a person might have interest in and then creating an environment, you know, I mean, that's the, uh, the, uh, our store, we want our stores to feel residential Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm much more inspired by hospitality than I am, you know, retail. I've always taken my cues from, uh, you know, like you want to, you want a store to feel the way that you feel when you walk into your favorite hotel lobby. Right. And, um, I think there's that, but then there's like the, um, the greeting and the experience that mm. you receive. And actually, I mean, the armory does this very well. Uh, uh um, the, the guys there, um, I always go to the one up on Madison and, uh, the guys are amazing, but, um, the, I think that that's always been a passion of ours and, uh, the stores work because of the product and because of the people. And then early on, you know, we kept them small. I mean, our first yeah. store in New York was like 400 square feet. Now it drives me crazy because I can only fit, <laughs> you know, a fourth of the product. I mean, I, sure. I, so I'm so over, not over them, but I'm just ready for, uh, the yeah. new expression. Um, and we have a we have a new store opening on uh, in Flatiron that um, it will oh be much God. much larger. So, uh, but the um, yeah, I mean, and uh, Sasha and I had a store when we launched Ecom, and it was tiny. It was behind a bus stop in Venice that um, was on Venice Boulevard, mm-hmm. and I mean, we had zero traffic. Like the only traffic were like people that we would invite over from the coffee shop, you know, and that, uh, experience, we slowly built that business, um, you know, and, and that store kind of became like the format and, and, uh, we always, we always wanted to have, um, a physical expression, even though we kind of like came up as a D to C brand and, you know, e-com was a big part of what we, what we were, what we did at the time. I think that, um, uh, the store expression is, you know, it's really important and, and we, we love that part of the business. Um, I don't think it's going away. I mean, what are your thoughts on it? No, I, I don't think retail is going away at all. If my friends that are friends and friends of mine who are in the industry, who are doing retail, um, most of them are way up, like yeah. in terms of growth and, you know, percentage, like they're doing better. Um, you know, I would say that the ones that maybe are, are struggling right now might have, you know, thrown themselves into a lot of different verticals simultaneously and just overextended themselves, which is common across any industry. I don't think, you know, when people's like, I don't know, retail may be down. It's like, well, is it? Because commun- I mean, retail is community and community is not going anywhere. Like everybody wants someone to hang out with. They want someone to talk about whatever pop culture sports thing, you know, which I think is always really interesting when you see folks do coffee shops or some sort of non, you know, clothing based thing in a clothing store um, because it, it creates community. And yeah. it's just, you know, and it's interesting because like, you know, British like club culture, right? You know, there's um, um a lot of times it's just like you want a place to hang out and, and the club culture you know, it has its own sort of issues over time, right? If certain people couldn't get in or whatever of of how to be dressed, but like just the fact of having a place to go and hang out. I mean, I was in New York the other day and we had finished dinner and it wasn't that late. 
but none of us really wanted to like drink or like get nuts, but we still wanted to hang out and just talk. And we really couldn't find a place to just go sit. And I was like, man, I wish like a store or something was open late. Cause like I, I'd buy some clothes right now or I'd, you know, or just a place to go sit and chill. And, you know, it makes you realize more. It's like, yeah, like people just want community. And so when, when the retail store and experience, you know, can be that in addition to commerce, then yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're going anywhere. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. It's, it's also, uh, I, I'm curious about a lot of my friends, maybe it's just the age, but a lot of my friends aren't wanting to drink as much, you know, uh, it's a trend. I, I don't it is drink, a trend. Uh, I don't drink, but like a lot of my friends are, you know, going from, you know, they're, they'll still drink, but they'll drink just a little bit. And that leaves you with, okay, where do we go? <laughs> you know, what yeah. do we do? You know, that and, was exactly um, what happened with us. We were like, really? well, yeah, like we're, we don't want to get plastered, you know? Sure. You know, we're all like in our like approaching our 40s or in the middle of our 40s or whatever, where it's just like, we're not, we just kind of want to hang out. And I, I, you're exactly right. I think restaurants are dealing with this too when they make a lot of money off alcohol, where they're just like, yeah, well, we're doing, you know, mocktails. I'm air quoting that word or, you know, or NA stuff because that's people, anyone will pay a ton for a fun drink, but you don't yeah. need to get lit out of your mind in the process. Yeah. Well, if you're anything <laughs> like me, you know, when you go on a work trip, it's your chance to sleep. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, I think that, um, uh, the retail, the idea of a retail store that thinks far beyond selling clothing mm. that that's the, you know, it's gotta be a mind. I think it has to be a mindset. Um, and they're set up like you go in and there's like a hundred mannequins everywhere. Like, what <laughs> do we really need? Like, what are we doing with all these mannequins? Like, yeah. Is, is that really how, is that really what you want to say? Yeah. And, um, uh, and then also the, the team, you know, like how do you find a group of people that, um, are excited about the product and want to, you know, uh, bring a, bring that experience to the customer? I mean, that's a difficult, that's a difficult, um, situation if you're thinking, uh, it kind of an, with an old school mentality, right? Like not going to like pay someone 15 bucks an hour to like, right. you know, articulate, this is a marketing role. You're, you've got, this is a marketing position, right? This is a person who you're, you're, you're asking people to tell your story. Mm -hmm. So you've got to think about that totally different. You know, I mean, there needs to be, there needs to be incentives. There needs to be a way to, um, again, you know, offer ownership. So like our store managers are cut in to the, uh, P and L and they, they have full visibility of the P and L and they manage That's not their normal own for listeners, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And then they, um, and then they, uh, they're heavily incentivized, um, to, you know, build, build a business. And I think that, um, you know, it's kind of like, you, I think you've got to revamp the whole thing. Um, if you want to make it feel more like, a, um, if you want it to be a more personal, thoughtful, conscientious experience. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine, we were, yeah, at one point we were like debating starting a business, you know, through different things. And we found ourselves in this situation where it's like, you know, I think the best retail, you don't really need to have retail employees that sell product, right? You just need to have a really, you know, warm and hospitable environment and the product will sell itself because people just want to hang out there. And eventually they're gonna be like, all right, I saw someone else in these jeans or this and I'm like, I I'm just doing it. And we were like, you know, but one thing is like, 
trying to get reservations at other places or knowing where to go or where else to be. Like it's easy to to communicate like, hey, this is where you should shop and this is our store, come visit us. But then being like, come visit us, we're gonna get you a reservation at here. Obviously very difficult to scale. But I think just that mindset of coming here, hanging out. I mean, Sid Mashbird's tried to do that, you know, throughout some of his stores in Atlanta. Um, and where it's like, come hang out, relax. You know, a friend of mine, he uh, runs a small store and he used to never let any of his employees sit down while they were there. You know, if no one was there, you could sit down. But he was just like, you know, if someone walks in and you're sitting down, you're going to lose that sale. And that was like his dad because it was like his dad's store. And now he's like, no, no, no. We want to be disarming. You know, like you don't want to look like aloof. There's a big difference. But he's like, if you're sitting down, you know, you want to you want it to be kind of relaxing. You want this to be more of a, a club, more of, you know, versus, you know, shine your shoes, sir. You know, like, that, so. that that's so that's so funny you say that because one of our rules for the corporate people yeah. is that if you're traveling stores, you never sit down in a store. Oh, interesting. When you're traveling stores and you're out there working with the team, whoever you are from the uh, from the HQ, you're sort of like the minute you walk in, you're participating. Oh, that makes you're sense. You're part of the team. Yeah, you're, you're part of the team, and you're you know you know you're not like um, just chilling. But I totally agree with this perspective that like you want it to be a hang. Yeah. And and so that has changed things uh, uh, for us as well. And how you sort of think about like crafting that experience. You're exactly right. It might be cool if you walk in and, you know, the team is chilling, um, you know, having an espresso or whatever. And uh, I think that, yeah, that's the that's, it's tough, especially when you start thinking about, OK, now we're going to try to figure out how to master this in like 50 of these or 100 of these, you know, um, and I think what you have to do is give people autonomy. Yeah, I mean, you know, there has to be freedom. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because, yes, it's true. You know, someone's going to hear this and be like, well, I have, you know, 99% tourists in my store or something. And I can't do that because that's that's signaling A, B and C. Of course. Obviously, like, yeah, you're right. Like, be your best judge on that stuff. And I think that makes the most sense. But for some places, yeah, it might make sense to, you know, like, what are the things that if when you go to other stores that throw you off, we'll do the opposite of that in yours. You know, it's just like, use your best judgment. Yeah, in that. yeah I mean, it's, uh, I forgot where I was at the other day. And um, it was like a line to get in the store. And I was like, man, I was like, I wonder how many potential sales they're losing by just people who see the line and they're like, F it, like I can't do it, you know? And that's that's not a bad thing. That's, you're doing well, right? I mean, if there's a line to get in your store, way to go. But I'm like, well, you know, how, how do... How does that stuff exist when I think about companies like, you know, Supreme would have it or Amelie Andor and all these places where, you know, how many people would walk by and drop, you know, two, three grand just trying to get something in? Yeah, my friend just, so one of my friends just said this to me. They said, could you imagine if you flew to New York and on your list, you know, was to go to these few stores and, you know, you're like trying to catch a flight or yeah. whatever. You only have a little window and you go and there's like, you're not on the list or you, there's no line yeah. and you can't get in, you know, like, like, can you imagine what that would feel like? And so we've never done lines. I mean, some of our stores are so small that, um, they are ridiculous. Like oh, the uh, Saturday, store, yeah. it's a you, tiny store. Oh, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's tiny. And like, it's, it's a really, it, it can, it can be you know, not a great experience if you come when it's busy. Um, 
But the idea of like setting up a line, it just, that's never felt right to me. You, yeah. you know, it, it feels exclusive. You want it to be inclusive. And, um, you know, uh, obviously the solution is build bigger stores yeah. probably, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I, I, I don't know, you know, I've never thought, uh, the, and then the thing about the lines that are, is always confusing to me. If you wait in line, but then you get in there and like, nobody's really in there. And oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think it's, it, this is, I think the most challenging thing for retail stores now is catering to a very diverse type of customer where some want no attention, some have no desire or expectation to buy in store. They just want to showroom the store and they're going to purchase online, you know, yep. um, and you have all of those simultaneously. And then, then you just have a random person who's like, I need a shirt. And I walked past here. Someone told me to get a shirt here, you know, and it's, I think it's really difficult to serve all of them equally well. Um, yeah, I, I know. And you're, you end up hiring for people that have super high EQ. Yeah. 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 Right. You know, you're sort of looking for people that can recognize, you know, who wants what. And, uh, and often if you want people with a super high EQ, to work in your store, you know, you need to hire people that have less experience, mm -hmm. you, you know, because if they have a lot of experience, they're going to be qualified to do other roles. Like they'll be managing, you know, right. they'll be managing a store. They'll be, you know, like director of marketing or whatever, but um, you can get inexperienced people with a super high EQ that actually have really great taste and decent communication skills. I think if you go more inexperienced, right, right, right. But um. Also hiring like the jaded, you know, the, the, the people who uh, like like clothes, but sort of like hate the clothing industry. Oh, yeah. Like that is not who you want in the, in, in the stores. Yeah, that's and, yeah. <laughs> very common. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's very you true. Know. I mean, there's been a handful of stores you go to and like, you know, people are like this person just doesn't want me here. And you're like, yeah, because you ruined their TikTok story when you walked in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I agree. They probably shouldn't have been doing it, but that was what they were doing. And that's why they don't like it. <laughs> totally, yeah, man. it's totally. it's gnarly. Um, well, we're, we're starting to wrap up, but I, I did want to kind of go through a few other things. What has yeah, sure. what have been the stuff that's been kind of driving you lately? Whether it's an album, a movie, a trip, an experience, but just kind of like how have you been kind of disconnecting and resetting yourself? On the re reconnecting and resetting myself, uh, that's basketball, actually. Um, uh, oh, go on. <laughs> I um, as an NBA or yeah, playing it both. Oh. Uh, both. Uh, so basketball was my first love. I actually played basketball in college for a year. I, um, uh, that was the plan, you know, I was going to take that as far as I could take it. And, um, and I gave it up. I put the ball down, uh, at 19 and really didn't play for 15 years. And then when the pandemic, it was a pandemic happened, I started playing at my local Y okay. and it, <laughs> has become a full-on obsession. I mean, I'm like completely back in uh, playing, uh, you know, of like regular schedule. Um, and it's such a complete release. Uh, and that, it, you know, I, I can kind of go and just completely disconnect two hours later. I sort of like, like waking up, you know, anew. Wow. So, How's your mid-range yeah. jumper? It's coming along. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's coming along. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it's it's weird because as you get older, you have to completely change your game. Right. Like everything changes and you have to like you can't do anything that you used to be able to do. And if you try, you just look silly. So, you you, you know, you have to kind of figure out where you are in the process 
and what skills you still have, what skills you don't have. So it's really great, like mentally to, you know, um, actually be brutally honest with yourself and yeah. <laughs> figure out where, you know, figure out where you are. So that's been, uh, that's been a big one. Yeah. I was going to say, I take it you're a Steve Nash fan then as uh, talking about reinventing Loves- yourself. Yeah, absolutely love Steve Nash. Um, yeah, and the NBA right now is amazing. I mean, do you, do you watch? Are you are absolutely? You, are you bas- I it's the oh, only great. sport that I I love everything about. I mean, I love I love wow. the and and also when you look at every other American sport right now, the NBA I think is the one that's growing the most. You know, I mean, I, someone's going to say, "Oh no, MLS or F one." Like, sure, but like the NFL is too dangerous. Not long enough. Yeah. You know. I'm sure it's got the Taylor Swift bump, but like, you know, uh, MLB, you don't have any superstars, you know, um, you don't, you don't have the kind of Michael Jordan, LeBron James style person that's like in the culture representing the the league. That's also serving as a a way to recruit, you know, I mean, there's, there's not really a pipeline to bring people back in. So you don't have the you don't have a larger market cap. I mean, just the business of the sport as a whole. And I'm not trying to sound like Bill Simmons, but like you look at all that stuff, but like the NBA for me, it's just a sweet spot. The games are short. Yeah. You know, the, the MLB did do some better stuff by putting the pitch clock in this, this past season. Um, right. I mean, cause I do love baseball, but I don't, I have very few friends outside of St. Louis, cause St. Louis is a big baseball town that like baseball, you know, they, they like the baseball culture, but you know, I feel like the my friends that like NBA, they like to to debate the NBA. They like to talk about NBA culture. They also like to watch the game and critique the game and talk about everything that's happening. They're so in it. And it's not our age. I think it's just the sport is so accessible for that. Um, do you, it's a do player's you think game. That, do you think basketball is the most artistic sport? I don't know. So I, I think soccer could be, but I think it's 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 much more difficult to understand. Um, I think basketball, especially if you're like a Spurs fan, you know, when you look at like great coaching, you look at the the Spurs and like the the mid aughts, um, or you know, Golden State when they had their perfect season. I think that's really artistic because you get to see like different levels of teamwork and conditioning and and uh, you know non non Jordan ball like that's why like I don't care about the 96 bulls like I just don't like I, I it's there was cool stuff there but I think because you know I didn't really get to understand it the way I did I I someone's going to be like Jordan was the goat and it's like yeah but like Jordan was also like a gambling maniac and was probably not the person people want to aspire to be versus LeBron James has you know hundreds and hundreds probably in thousands now of children who have an education because of his foundation. Like that yeah. that's real yeah. impact. Like, and so like seeing all that, you know, and, and surviving, not just as an athlete, but as a person that someone aspires to be, it's, it's really tough to make that connection across other, other sports. I don't know. Yeah. It's soccer and basketball are the two that I think of because there's so much fluidity. Yeah. Like, whereas, you know how, uh, like when you think about the MLB or NFL, uh, there's sort of a play and then the play stops. Right. And then in the NBA or in basketball, you know, you're, you're potentially free, mm-hmm. you know, for a pretty long period of time. You know, you could be completely free four or five, six trips down the court yeah, and you can move anywhere at any time. Yeah. Right. It's true. You, you can, you, you have this ball and you're sort of like, you, 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 like the more advanced you are, same thing with soccer, right? The more advanced you are with this ball, the, the things that you can do with it are remarkable. Yeah. And, and when you watch someone like, uh, you know, like, um, current, like Steph Curry or like Ja Morant or some of these, some of these people that, yeah. um, what they can do with the ball is like mesmerizing. <laughs> and I just think of it, 
I just think of it as like such a creative endeavor. And then, uh, and then I read that Bill Russell um, was really thought of himself. As, he wanted to be an artist. That was his, he grew up, he thought he was going to be an artist. And when he got onto the basketball court, he sort of like, you know, oh. that was that, that he thought that this was sort of like a, an art form. And um, there's a, there's a great documentary about him. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think it's such a, and then, and then what's interesting is the NBA guys have style and they have such great instincts. A lot of them have really great instincts, I think, around uh, dressing and culturally, they always seem like they're just a part of the zeitgeist in a way that's maybe different from from the other uh, professional sports leagues. And I just wonder if basketball sort of attracts creative people. I think it does. I think also the, you know, the NBA is, an, is a player's league versus an owner's league. Like when you look at uh, NFL is an owner's league, you know, um, MLB is an owner's league. You, th- there's not, you know, in the NBA, one of the biggest things that happen, you know, uh, is a lot of these guys, they can have their own podcast. They can talk. They can they can be themselves or the person that they want to try to be for better and for worse. Right. I mean, everyone hated Kyrie for all the, you know, stuff, but like, you know, they can have that personality and they can still play the game and, and that can exist simultaneously versus, you know, if you were out of line on some of these other sports or, you know, you're never going to do better than the owner, you never, you know, and I feel like I'm, I'm much more about, you know, empowering the individual versus like the system at large, you know, I mean, I'm, yeah. uh, so, I mean, and it's, because some people are like, no, NFL is just the greatest. And I get it. And there is a lot of art to the NFL. I do think people like Patrick Mahomes is an incredible athlete and stuff. And I'm not dunking on him. But it's when I think of like how approachable and how, you know, th- these other sports can be uh, and the amount of games, et cetera. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I just I love League Pass. I'll just say it there, man. League Pass, sponsor the pod, please. <laughs> like, it's just like I love it so much. But uh, yeah, totally, man. <laughs> well, that's good. So you're playing sports. Good for you. That's a yeah, good disconnect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That, there's the reset. There's the reset. <laughs> nice. Well, Eric, I think that's a good place to wrap. Uh, thank you. Thank you again. Thanks a lot, man. It was great to meet you. Talk to you soon. Great to meet you as well. See ya. All right, that's it for today's show. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amarlal. Our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, share the pod with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, five stars on Spotify, or whatever it is you do. You can follow us on Instagram for all the hot content, at Blamo Podcast. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a message or email us. Actually, just email us at info at blamopod.com. And uh, last but not least, if you want to hang out with us, you're like, I need all the blamo I can. Well, first off, dig through the archive because we have hundreds of episodes in there. But uh, you can, you should join us on the Blam Fam. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash blamo. And we got tons of exclusive episodes on there, including our exclusive shows, which is Blamo Presents Die Workwear, The Triple J Show. It's all in there. Dive in. Happy holidays, everyone. You like that? A big, big tie into the intro. Okay. See you later.